I'm dual qualified as a clinical psychologist and I'm accredited as a neuropsychologist. Both of those tended to be significant in my journey towards understanding psychedelic medicine. But one of the things you learn very quickly when you experience psychedelics, your need for boundaries and your need for deep privacy dissolves because you develop deeper self-acceptance. So while psychedelics are remarkable catalysts and accelerants of personal growth, consciousness, expansion and deep healing, they're not the whole picture. Psychedelic as, as a term was actually coined by Dr. Humphrey Osmond in 1956, and it means mind manifesting. Maybe I need to have more boundaries in my life. Okay, what are the exact parameters we'll create? So by writing your life story, you're actually tilling the soil. You're uprooting all of the relevant emotional material so that it's right there primed for processing when you go into the psychedelic experience. Hello and welcome to Navigating the Twenties. You're with me, Zinchenovazi. In today's episode, I delve into the fascinating realm of psychedelic assisted therapy with Dr. Anthony Townsend, a seasoned clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist with over a decade of experience. Join the conversation with Dr. Townsend, the founder of Equanimity, which is a pioneering wellness clinic. Dr. Townsend sheds light on their innovative approach to tackling the complexities of identity, relationships, and value incongruence, which is often encountered in one's 20s. Discover how equanimity seamlessly integrates traditional therapy methods with the transformative potential of plant medicines like psychedelics alongside a wealth of modern and ancient wisdom. Tune in to gain a deeper understanding of the profound impact of psychedelic assisted therapy and its impact on personal development and mental well-being and learn how equanimity is leading the charge in this transformative field. Hi Anthony, how are you? I'm very well, thanks in yourself, Sensei. I'm not too bad myself. I think I'm very excited to have a conversation with you because for a long time I've been following psychedelics, but probably more on the extreme side with wanting to go experience ayahuasca. And then I think I came across equanimity through a friend who is also in the health and wellness space. And she was like, it's so nice that officially in Johannesburg, we now have a place where people can go. So I just want to get your background where like, in terms of your career, how are you traditionally trained and how did you end up founding Equanimity? Sure. Well, I mean, like you, I'm also equally excited for the conversation. And it's also nice to be able to, as you say, give context and background to all of it. Mm-hmm. So when I turn back to, to my own training, I'm dual qualified as a clinical psychologist and I'm accredited as a neuropsychologist. And both of those tended to be significant in my journey towards understanding psychedelic medicines. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, as a clinical psychologist, I trained the traditional therapies all the way from undergraduates all the way to my master's and even into my PhD studies. Sure. And what was incredibly important to me was that I was introduced to a varieties of theories of how emotional distress works, about human functioning, about emotion, and about diagnostics. And while in my practice, I started to find that many of these tools were remarkably helpful and assisted me, I also started to notice, as so many of us do, there were incredible limitations to them. 
We often see this revolving door phenomenon occur for patients uh, where you get better for a short while, then you get worse all over again. And that had been playing on my mind for some time. It was around the time that my frustration in that regard that was starting to peak that um, I was doing some neuroscience studies overseas. Um, and when I got to study overseas, one of the things that was really interesting to everyone at the time were the psilocybin research studies that Roland Griffiths had been doing. And we started to recognize that there's this class of molecule that seems to have this rapid and effective capacity to help people change in rather remarkable ways. Yeah. This, of course, intrigued me. And so I started to see my clinical psychological training and my neuroscientific understanding about the brain really converge in this really beautiful way through psychedelics. Mm. After I got familiar with the research, I naturally became curious, started to experiment with these things in legal settings in my own right, and started to find that it was all too compelling, both from my personal experience and from the academic literature, not to start introducing these things as viable agents for people in need. And Anthony, if I can just rewind, given like your training in like clinical psychology, do you feel that our curriculum um, is equip is equipping you as professionals enough to deal with the issues? Like you mentioned that a lot of patients have like recurring issues and that psychotherapy on its own is not enough. Do you feel from an educational background, now that you like you completed all the way to your PhD, that that was sufficient? And also, the second part would be like in terms of the curricula that you learned in South Africa compared to when you went overseas, what are the two distinctions between how they take on psychology as a discipline? Well, I'll, I'll answer those questions in reverse order. With regards to the first question of how would I compare the curricula overseas versus South Africa, I would tell you that what really, really gave me confidence in our education system is that when I spent time at this all too prestigious university overseas, I was immediately reassured that we are very, very well trained indeed. It was not the case that our understandings of things were deeply backwards and regressed. We had all the same knowledge. We had all the same research. We might not always have the same funding and the same celebrity in lecturers, but we have incredible teachers in our country. So I did feel that our caliber of training was equivalent. I think they were just getting to get introduced to these research studies a little bit faster, but certainly not when it came to any kind of really significant change. When I think back to your first question around, do I think we're appropriately qualified? I think I would always say no for the simple reason that our understanding of how human beings operate is always limited by paradigms. Mm. And so while we try to touch on certain paradigms in South Africa, we still focus very heavily on what we call the psychoanalytic paradigm and the medical model. And again, while they are advantageous in some ways and they can be really useful to us, we are in the midst of what might be considered the psychedelic revolution where we're starting to see that there are new models that are coming to prominence. But the great news about it is that I think that our country is on the forefront because in very many respects, I've been invited to conduct trainings on these new understandings at universities. So it seems like we're starting to get momentum on creating that change. It's nice to see that we are forward thinking in that respect. You had mentioned that you had personal encounters with cybercillin as well as in the professional context. Are you happy to share um, with us in terms of your own personal experience? Yes, of course. I think that one of the things you learn very quickly when you experience psychedelics 
is that your your need for boundaries and your need for deep privacy dissolves because you develop deeper self-acceptance. So I'd be more than happy to talk about those experiences. In your personal journey, how did you end up veering towards that path? Because I've been curious and my like if I can share that my main reason for wanting to go that path is that I had tried psychotherapy, I've done like meditation practices. I did hypnotherapy and I always felt like there's a part that's because it's in my subconscious. It doesn't always get there. I think hypnotherapy got close, but it was still not close enough. So there's these repeat patterns I keep seeing. And I know that traditional psychotherapy doesn't necessarily give me the tools to access those hidden parts. So it's so interesting that you remark upon it because my motivation was exactly the same as yours. I found that as I was trying out all of these tools that are utilized for others, and of course I employ myself, they were helping me some way along the way, but certainly not necessarily sufficiently. I never quite felt like I was breaking through to the core of it. And when I was reading that this is really the promise and prospect of using a psychedelic medicine, that's exactly what attracted me towards it. Well, and was yours like in a normal clinic or did you, I don't know, did you get to experience like ayahuasca and go out to Brazil or, you know, how the billionaires mostly describe the experience or the shaman somewhere different? Or was this also like similar to what you're now providing to people at Equanimity? No, it, it, it wasn't similar to what we've created in Equanimity. And in fact, it's a big reason why we created what we have at Equanimity. Um, I felt very fortunate in the journey that I took because I was already equipped with a lot of psychological knowledge. So I had good self-awareness. I knew how to calm myself in difficult situations, and I was quite open to new experiences. So I almost got lucky that my training had prepared me somewhat for what I was going to experience. There weren't really clinics of this nature when I first started going through the experiences, but it didn't quite go as far as ayahuasca. That, that is a, vi- a very intimidating part. Yeah. But it was a more unique experience. It was simply part of a group in a legal geography where I could safely experience this. And um, it turned out to be one of the more profound experiences of my life. And sure. by witnessing what really was valuable about the experience, for instance, the attention to detail, the care, the natural environment, those things we incorporated into the way economity works. We didn't want our clinic to look like a clinic. We wanted it to look like a natural, comfortable spa. Yeah. And all of the things that it lacked, therapeutic rigor, safety and screening protocols, all of these things, we incorporated them. So it's almost that these experiences paired with clinical literature helped shape, you know, our clinic by looking both at what works and what doesn't. And take me through the process. So like if I am keen to come through and book a session, um, how does it work with your clinic? I know you guys have a rigorous process in terms of getting to know the person and kind of identifying what the correct, I don't know if it's regimes or right, but the correct type of therapy that you would recommend for that person. Can you take me through the process that you follow with new clients that are coming in? The one thing that, you know, the, the clinical literature tells us very clearly is that while psychedelics are effective, while they can be incredibly helpful, they are also not a panacea. They are not for everyone. That's why we have our screening processes. There are really two layers to our screening process. So if you were to call up uh, our center, um, we would book an appointment for you and we'd say, great, you're going to meet with two people before we do anything else. You're going to meet with our our resident psychologist um, and one of our team members, and you're going to meet with our doctor. 
So a psychologist will conduct a thorough psychological screening. She will essentially ask you a whole range of questions, your motivations for seeking the treatment, what you've been struggling with, your family history, psychiatric history, medical history, educational history, occupational history, your lifestyle habits, your substance use. She'll take this really comprehensive overview of you as a person, in as a whole, and in your context, so that she can essentially look if you have any of what we call the contraindications, the red flags that speak to this not being good for you. Sure. And some of those from a psychological perspective include if you or a person in your immediate family have a history of bipolar one disorder or mm-hmm. schizophrenia, people who are predisposed towards psychotic or episodes or disorders often have negative reactions. It often happens for people who struggle with psychotic episodes or psychotic disorders is that when you introduce a psychedelic, they actually have a negative experience. Mm. Psychedelics serve to disrupt what's going on in your mind, and they're intended to break rigid thinking patterns. For people with a predisposition to psychosis, their thinking is already so disrupted, their emotions are already so loose and labile, that we almost pour petrol on the flame, making them even more disorganized. So they often don't necessarily carry benefit for somebody. For that reason, that would be one of our red flags, so to speak. Another is for somebody who has a great deal of difficulty regulating emotions when in distress. So if you're the kind of person who, when you're upset, it just escalates, 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 and you don't have strong coping mechanisms to bring yourself back down, sometimes psychedelics can, again, be a little bit more disruptive than they are helpful. And for that reason, we would often have that person engage in other forms of therapy before they have a psychedelic experience just to make sure they have the best possible outcome. Once you run through this process with a psychologist, if you are the person who has no red flags, which fortunately is the vast majority of people, we then allow you to begin the preparation process. But before we do so, we ask you to go meet with one of our doctors who does a full physical, a thorough medical exam, taking your history with a huge focus, particularly on your risk for cardiac disease. Psychedelics like ketamine and others often actually increase and change blood pressure levels. And so for people who've got a history of heart disease, stroke, or any kind of cardiovascular anomalies, this can be really dangerous for them. And while we often have medications that can control these sorts of things, we still want to have a clear understanding of whether it's actually going to be safe. The only other people we're careful of are people who have a history of severe neurological disorder or disease people who are breastfeeding, or anyone who might have a risk of preeclampsia. And that's where we start our three phases of treatment thereafter. You've fleshed that out so well. I think it's because mainstream media doesn't focus on that. So everyone's just worried about like, will you get addicted to it? What's the, like when you microdose, what's the right dosage for an average person and so on. And with your clinic, how do you work out uh, what the appropriate dosage is um, per person? Well, the particular molecule that we utilize at our clinic is ketamine. Now, okay. ketamine is understood to be a pseudo-psychedelic, and the reason we call it that is because it has a different mechanism of action to mm-hmm. psilocybin, ayahuasca, and LSD, which are typically called your classic psychedelics. Those other medicines tend to push up high levels of serotonin throughout the brain, and they mimic its action. What ketamine does is it's what you call an NMDA, N-methyl-D-aspartate, antagonist. So actually what what happens with your classic psychedelics is they push serotonin up to switch the brain centers of the emotion all the way to the top. 
What ketamine does is the reverse. It actually quiets down the logical centers so that the emotional centers get loud. They're different routes to the same outcome. Sure. With ketamine, it's been one of the most studied chemicals on the planet. It's been included on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines since the 1970s. And so we know that it's very safe and well tolerated. But thanks to all of this research, there are very clear prescription guidelines that we're able to use. So when we look at what's a standard dose, a common dose for someone to take, especially in their first infusion, is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Mm -hmm. And so as you can tell, what happens is our physician, a diplomat anesthetist, a specialized GP who knows how to administer these sorts of medications, will actually do a full physical on you and based on your body weight, we'll be able to calculate and calibrate the right dosage for you. What's worth noting is that there's a standard range and that with each subsequent infusion, you will often look at how you tolerated the dosage or did you develop any tolerance and you'll slowly change the dosage as you go along. For many people, because they do between one and six infusions, they often start with a low dosage, but by the time they're getting to six, it's gone up. 0.1 milligrams each time. So they might end up at 0 0.8, 0 0.9, or even one milligram right at the end in order to have the same deepening effect that they're looking for from the first time. Sure. That's quite impressive. So it, it's, uh, I think this is why it's actually nice to go to a clinic. It's not like you just have somebody guessing like this is the dosage you should take. And, and now I also know that there is a pseudo psychedelic form so I didn't know that. Like I knew the, again, I think it comes from what's emphasized as being mainstream out there. So I just learned something new. The other thing I think that would be, just before I interrupted you, you're going to talk me through the different types of therapies that you offer. Um, and what are those? Well, when, when, when I was talking about those three phases, there are different types of therapy, but they actually map across your journey. And so one of the things that we, we've known quite some time now is that if psychedelics could cause massive emotional change and deep healing by themselves, then we wouldn't need therapy beyond it. Now, we know that psychedelics by themselves don't necessarily do this. After all, if that was true, that would mean that every person who's gone to a raid would come home an enlightened Zen Buddha with no problems thereafter. And that's not really how things have gone. At Equanimity, we, we like to say the magic is not only in the medicine. Mm. So while psychedelics are remarkable catalysts and accelerants of personal growth, consciousness, expansion, and deep healing, they're not the whole picture. Mm. What we've noticed is that the change must be accompanied by therapy. So once somebody's being screened, you go into the first phase, and that's called preparation. Preparation is about preparing your mind and preparing your body for a psychedelic experience. When it comes to preparing your mind, two of the things that are really important are what we call the cognitive tasks, the thinking tasks that you need to do. Mm -hmm. One thing that we ask anyone going through a psychedelic experience to do is to write what's called a psychobiography or life story. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we ask you to journal about important relationships, life experiences, and turning points that you've encountered. More often than not, we find people have huge benefits just from this act. Um, just from really introspecting and reflecting on their lives, you already start to achieve new insights. Why this becomes so useful is that when you go into a psychedelic experience, essentially what you're going to find is that whatever is primed in your mind, whatever is uppermost in your mind, 
is what's going to get processed. So that, that's why we use the term psychedelic in the first place. Psychedelic as, as a term was actually coined by Dr. Humphrey Osmond in 1956, and it means mind manifesting. So whatever is your unconscious emotional experience, whatever your deepest needs are, they will become manifest to you. So by writing your life story, you're actually tilling the soil. You're uprooting all of the relevant emotional material so that it's right there primed for processing when you go into the psychedelic experience. The second cognitive exercise we ask someone to do is an intention setting exercise. So intentions are very much goals or desired states of being that you're trying to achieve. Very often you'll hear in psychedelic therapy, people refer to the term journey. They say, I'm going on a journey. And that's true. You're, you're traveling from an emotional point A to an emotional point B. But in order for it to be a meaningful journey, you don't just want to give yourself a psychedelic and see where you're going. You want to have an idea of where you'd like to end up yeah. in this journey. So we ask people to set between one and three intentions to serve as a point B in their mind, to give the mind a direction to follow. Maybe it's, I want to forgive my parents. I want to love myself more. I want to understand why I'm so anxious. Anything that's got to do with self-exploration, change or healing becomes an intention. And what happens as a result is your life story forms point A, your intentions form point B, and we now have a roadmap to follow for the course of your therapeutic journey. Your mind feels settled and prepared. And we do this all couched within the most important criterion. Trusting relationship with the knowledgeable guide. You have this therapist there with you who's helping you, holding your hand through the whole process and ready to walk into any of the dark, difficult corners of your experience that you might too. It's not only worth preparing your mind, as we said, you also have to prepare your body. Much of this is experiential. So very often at our center, we say that we don't want you just to prepare yourself in this way. We also want you to start a few lifestyle practices, which we offer at the center, but you can also do at home. The first of which is that we often prescribe that it can be really useful for you to begin a meditation practice. The reason being is that this will teach you how to adopt a curious, non-judgmental inclination towards your mind. Yeah. Very often we have this tendency when we feel discomfort or emotional pain to want to run away. And what meditation will teach you is to, to, to be curious, to lean into it, to try and understand it more deeply. And it's precisely this way of doing things that we want you to employ in a psychedelic experience. Paired with that, we often recommend two practices, one very popular and the other very intimidating. The popular one is yoga. Yeah. Yoga is an amazing lifestyle practice, not only because it's deeply meditative, but because it actually serves as a useful analog for a psychedelic journey. In yoga, you're going to put yourself very voluntarily and intentionally in lots of difficult, complicated positions. You're going to get very uncomfortable, all on purpose, and you're going to learn to slow your breathing, calm yourself, and embrace. Yeah. And that becomes a really helpful skill when you're in a psychedelic experience. The other more intimidating variation of it that we offer, is, although it is becoming more popular, is cold exposure, where people voluntarily dive into the ice and learn to calm and, and, and cool themselves. It seems easily you are one of those people who is not <laughs> I've tried Wim Hof methods. I, I do do cold showers. I've done the cold plunge. And then what I like to do is with, I do long distance runs. So like, I think last weekend I did like a 25K 
And then I mm-hmm. opted to go into a cold pool afterwards. It's always the hardest, but the most rewarding because you're so amazed about what your body can do. And defi- defying the urge to want to be like oh, cold, like just giving in and surrendering to the cold and then just breathing it out. But it is quite, it's intimidating each time. I don't think like with the cold showers, it gets easier because you can always opt for hot. But when you do it in cold water, it's a different experience. I feel the same way as you and I agree with you. I don't think it ever gets easier on that front. But exactly what you've noticed is that sense of triumph afterwards can be such a relief. Mm-hmm. And so what we ask people to do is to begin embracing these sorts of practices. That alongside a few helpful tips like changing sleep and certain dietary patterns just before the journey all prepares you optimally for what you're about to experience. Once you're fully prepared, you're then ready to actually have the second phase of the journey itself. And Anthony, if I can take you back, I think this is very interesting because in all my years, I probably have had what, uh, maybe four or five different therapists and none of them have ever said like, write a life plan. I mean, those come up in therapy, but they don't say, what are the like top three things in your life that are top of mind that you'd like to work on? And also even setting intention for those therapy sessions, that's never been done. So I find that to be quite refreshing and a different aspect. And I can see how that feeds in because in the end, when a person, I guess, at the end of their journey, looking back, you can literally go back and see. So that almost becomes like your KPI for the journey. So then you know exactly where you started, what you aim to work through. So for me, that's that's like revolutionizing um, therapy in itself. You know, when we were talking earlier about, you know, models of therapy, many South African therapists have been trained in psychoanalytic therapy, myself included. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, psychoanalysis has some incredible strengths, ideas and values. It can be really useful in a lot of ways. But one of its limitations, as it's sometimes practiced, is that the therapist is encouraged to allow themselves and the person that they're working with to be, as they term it, free of memory and desire. Mm. You simply see where it unfolds to. Now, in our emotional worlds, this is not always an easy thing to cope with. And it's not always valuable. You know, as as a colleague of mine likes to say, he says, well, you know, in order for therapy to be useful, there must be an objective. Mm. And the way he often illustrates this is he says, well, imagine... Imagine doing therapy that way. So he said, imagine I ask you, listen, I want to go on a trip. I want to go on a holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I take a car, a plane, or, or should I walk? Yeah. And you're immediately going to say, well, that depends on where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And so our process of therapy is very much often, where do you want to go? Because that's going to determine how we get there. If mm-hmm. we don't have the way we're going to go, it's actually going to be really difficult, as you were pointing out. To know, number one, is this even working? And number two, what we should be doing in the first place. And so I'm really glad to hear that resonates with you because I I definitely feel the same way. I think there was a time where I was very good at meditating and now I'm going through a phase where I don't meditate and I journal because then that, I guess, all the thoughts get out and it seems to have the same pattern. So are you guys malleable with when a person with the different types of ways of meditating, I guess. Yes. We are not the type to impose. While we believe in structure and direction, we also believe in self-determination and authenticity. The great news about psychology 
is that the main rule is everybody's different. Everyone's an individual. So we are never insistent that one must meditate a certain way. There's no one right way to do it. Yeah. Very flexible and open and work with someone because I agree with you. Some things will work well for some people and not others. And for you as well, you will go through phases of certain things being more useful to you. We absolutely go with that flow. It's the only meaningful way of doing it. Yeah, that's quite progressive as well. And then coming to the physical, so it was the cold exposure or the yoga. Why specifically yoga? Why can't it be like Pilates or I don't know? I guess, yeah, I mean, you, I think you touched on it, but if Pilates can offer the breath work and the positioning, why do you specifically go for yoga? I love that. And I think that's a totally valid question. You know, if, if I give more depth of thought to it, the reality would be that you could apply this with any challenging physical endeavor. Mm-hmm. So as you said, it could be Pilates, it could be weightlifting, it could be cardiovascular exercise, it could be any of them. Any process that requires of you to intentionally put yourself in a state of strain or discomfort yeah. and self-regulate while in it mm-hmm. is good. I suppose if I'm honest, my, my preference for yoga is twofold. One, because I'm, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher and I love it very much. So I guess it was probably front of mind to me. Yeah. And I think second, because alongside Pilates, which I'm also a huge fan of, I think yoga is special because I don't think of yoga only as exercise. Mm. You know, yoga is, is closer to a life practice. And when you look at it, yoga combines three things. You know, in order to say it's yoga, it means there are a series of body postures or asanas. Mm-hmm. There are a series of breathwork exercises or pranayamas. Yes. And there is meditation. And so I'd almost want to say when I think of yoga, I think of it conceptually. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, if you do Pilates, which involves breathwork and body postures, but you do so mindfully, and I'm yeah. pretty sure you can't do Pilates any other way, frankly. <laughs> At least not if you want to survive that's it. Absolutely. Though, can you do that with weightlifting? Because then that would be a danger in itself. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. So I'd almost want to say, if you're combining those three components, which to my mind is yoga, but you're doing them, as you say, almost across the board anywhere, that's really what we'd be looking for. Somebody. Just as a side, like out of fun, do people opt more for the yoga than the cold, the, the cold immersion? They do indeed. My my dear friend, colleague and, and partner in the endeavor, Brad Cullenbach, is a huge fan of cold exposure. Yeah. Um, excuse the irony, I'm warming up to it. But, uh, but he's great and he's incredibly convincing when you speak to him. So it is the case that most people go for yoga, but if they chat to Brad, they, they all of a sudden build the mental fortitude to, to dive into the ice. And I, I haven't seen anyone regret it yet, which is good. Yeah. What comes next in the journey? Well, this is where we've kind of set the stage for somebody. So they become more and more prepared. Now, this is where it becomes individual because some people might just need one session with their psychologist to kind of work through their intentions and their life story. Others might need a little while, you know, because some of us might need to work on some tools to regulate emotions and deal with certain things. So what will happen is they'll have between one to about four on average therapy sessions with their therapist to build up that trusting relationship, to talk through some of the intriguing parts of their life story, to refine their intentions and to fully prepare their body and their mind. Once they feel safe, secure, and ready, or at least as ready as one can be, 
we then start with the psychedelic experience. So you will go into an infusion. Now, the way we run our infusions is that you'll come in on the day, you'll fill in a few quick questions just on how you're feeling, and then you're taken by a lovely medical staff through to what we call an infusion booth. An infusion booth looks an awful lot like a first-class um, flight seat on a really luxurious airline. You've got a lovely recliner and a private area and a soundproof room where you're able to just relax and lean back and begin to expand your consciousness and explore your mind. So we make sure that someone is dressed comfortably, feels nice, safe, and settled, and then our, our doctor will come in, administer the dosage, pull over your eye mask, and put onto your head some headphones for one of the key ingredients, a curated playlist that we've developed based on different research methodologies to serve as an emotionally evocative experience. In a lot of the psychological research on psychedelic experience, they actually often refer to music as the hidden therapist. And so we often use it as an important part of the intuition. Is there any particular music and what is a person looking at as they're sitting on this couch? And is, do you also try and incorporate like nature aspect? Um, in my mind, I'm picturing like a wall with um, greenery um, and also just out of fascination. Is it classical music or what type of music is it that you guys play? So as it pertains to music, there's a lot of research on what's going to be good and what's not. So it's a very short list of what not to listen to. What you shouldn't listen to is music that you have strong associations with, like movie soundtracks and those sorts of things, because as you can imagine, that's what you're going to be thinking about. Um, and the other one is music with lots and lots of lyrics and words. Unfortunately, if you hear lots of words, you're going into the cognitive regions of your brain, not the emotional ones, so it can be disruptive to your journey. If you take those two criteria away, whether that music is deep house, classical, techno, um, alternative, it doesn't really matter as long as it's melodic, emotionally evocative, and, and free from association, it can be really powerful. We actually use a blend of all of these different things. So, so Brad, who's a psychologist and a musician, took some time to review all of the playlists from leading universities, places like John Hopkins, Imperial College London. And we kind of took the parts that, that seemed to be the most evocative and helpful from the data and blended it in with something that feels a little bit more homegrown. For some, for some people who go through the experience, we often recommend use this playlist the first time. But then if you find that there are things that strike true to you, that, that you actually feel you want more of, you are allowed to introduce your own flavor and music to this because there are some things that are going to be personal and special to us. Yeah. So we often use those sorts of blends. When it comes to the, the curiosity about visuals, there are many clinics that will use things like nature and, and, and art. We actually encourage people to put on an eye mask. The reason for this is because we actually want you not to get externally distracted, but mm -hmm. rather to internally explore yourself. Oh, so wow. very many people do experience very pronounced visuals on psychedelics without any stimulus. So we actually recommend wearing the eye mask and we find that that's a far more profound experience and it prevents you, as we say, from running, running away to the exciting external and, and rather to go in and to do that deep emotional work. Since our podcast has a lot of people between the ages of 20 to 29, so hence the theme navigating the 20s, what are the big themes of what struggles we encounter in our 20s that you think 
may, may make a person consider if they've gone through different um, therapies or they've um, navigated their own way of dealing with some of the issues that they face. Let me rephrase that question, but rather who, who would be an ideal type? It's, it's such a good question. You know, what's intriguing about it is that you can be too young for psychedelics, but the interesting part is that people in their 20s benefit massively from them. Um, we actually find that we typically recommend psychedelic therapies for people who are about 24 years of age or older. The reason being is because when we hit about 24, neurologically speaking, our frontal lobe fully consolidates. And so there's almost the stability created in certain patterns in your life. Mm. Now, when it comes to the understanding of for people in their 20s, what do we most often see they're trying to navigate? There are actually several pertinent themes that many people in their 20s experience. Chief amongst them is identity. Mm. When you're in a period in your life where you're actually navigating new roles, shifting demands, new expectations, and you're trying to create a trajectory of who you want to become in the future, often based off little and conflicting information. Yeah. You're almost shedding the identity you had from your family of birth. You're busy establishing a new professional one. You're experiencing new relationships. And so there's a lot of emotion, conflict, and difficulty. Mm. And what often happens is we start to find that people in their 20s are forced into this position of developing these adaptational selves. I learn a face for work. I learn yeah. a face with people. I learn a face with my family but none of these are truly who I am. And I feel a little bit scattered and disrupted. And so the value of psychedelics becomes that it allows you to switch off this prefrontal cortex that's telling you who you should be. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to reconnect with your emotional needs at a deeper level to help you experience again who you really are with a deeper sense of comfort. Yeah. And this often eases a lot of things. Another difficulty that people in their 20s are often struggling with is value incongruence. So what I mean by that is that there are many desires and, and things that are considered desirable. You know, for some, it will be success or wealth or love or happiness or relaxation or balance or autonomy. And very many people in their twenties are trying to decide which of these am I going to gravitate towards? Mm -hmm. But again, we get so stuck in our heads about this, trying to make an intellectual, rational decision about something that's deeply emotional that we get confused. Psychedelics, once again, will allow you to explore your personality and your true identity to help you more closely identify with these things at a deeper level and help you develop the sense of direction in a way that's more congruent with your sense of self, that's not so incongruent. Yeah. And the final area that many people in their 20s are often struggling with is relationships. Mm -hmm. This is often a time where you're trying to figure out relationships at many levels and you're working on very difficult skills, such as vulnerable emotional communication, yeah. assertiveness and managing boundaries, whether that's at work or whether that's with friendships or intimate relationships or families. And very often psychedelics, when carefully paired with therapy, teaches you what your true needs are and how you can begin to actually navigate these relationships so that you can better get what you truly need. Why this is so valuable for people in their 20s is that rather, being, rather than being placed in the position that so many people are, where they're looking at this 20 to 40 years later and yeah. thinking, wow, how I could have done things differently, doing this in your 20s affords you the opportunity to come to these insights, to achieve a sense of wisdom early on. So instead of redirecting yourself at a later stage, 
you build it right from the beginning. Mm. I love how you you put that almost in like three frameworks, like the question of the self, which if I look back with the other guests I've had, it's a recurring theme. And I think because the self is forever evolving, if you can't tune into the inner self and understanding what your true voice is, how do you how do you quiet down all the other voices? Like what society says you should be, what your family, what your friends, what everyone. Because I was having a conversation with somebody the other day where I'm like, I think in my 20s I discovered, like at some point I was like, the self that is constructed is like maybe half other people's mm-hmm. and even camouflaging. Like if you incorporate, you learn to adopt certain things and eventually you catch yourself doing it like automatically. And that's not really the true self. So I think it is nice to use it as a way to facilitate that process together with the introspection that you are already doing through the therapy sessions, it guides that. And then coming to that value question, which I think because maybe with the people who are in their twenties now, like are a combination of maybe some millennials and some of the Gen Z's. And I think mm-hmm. with COVID, a lot of people saw like, they were like, okay, the only people who actually contribute to humanity are the essential workers. So if my job doesn't actually contribute to humanity, like what is my value in the world? Like, should I just be doing a job purely because I want money? Is money enough? What really brings value and again, then relationships is completely all together, navigating, depending on the type of relationship you've had with your parents from childhood to now, your relationship with colleagues, romantic relationships, relationships with friends, those are constantly changing as we evolve into different roles. If you become mar- married, you become um, you become a mother or a father, that then challenges the paradigm. I completely agree with you. I think it's exactly that. And Because all of these are iterative, constantly changing and evolving, and like you said, getting constructed from different directions, Mm -hmm. it becomes really important to recognize that very often when we're in our 20s and we've got this deep sense of unhappiness, Mm. but we experience it as nebulous. It's like, why am I so anxious? Why am I so unhappy, particularly when I seem to be successful or I seem to be moving and I seem to be doing these things? We struggle to locate it and finding some time to quiet the noise around you and learn to turn up the volume of the noises from within really serves to reorient you in in helpful ways so that you can actually start to engage and build your life based on what you really need, as you say, rather than what we call the musts and the shoulds of the world around you. Absolutely. And just touching on that for um, people, let's say, that are struggling with a lot of depression and anxiety, do you find that post the the treatment that they are a lot they've got better coping mechanisms with anxiety and depression or is it that there's less anxiety and depression it's more to do with coping so one of the reasons why i've grown so fond of psychedelic assisted therapy as a modality Mm -hmm. is because it's allowed us to change in a very profound way the way people think about emotions Mm. so Since about the 1980s, with the publication of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, the third edition, we've operated for a long time as psychologists and psychiatrists by something called the medical model. And according to the medical model, depression and anxiety and all the other things that we experience are the result of quote-unquote abnormal firing of brain circuits. So what that means is that when you get depressed, your brain is showing an abnormality in the way that it fires, There's a chemical imbalance 
And if we change the chemistry, we'll fix it. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a very well-intended explanation for why people feel the way that they do. But what we've noticed is that when we've used this model, while it helps a little bit to give people medications, it doesn't get them all the way. They don't truly get better. And that's because that's not the whole story. Emotions are not pathologies or diseases, but that's how we've learned to think about them. So when we get sad, we think we're doing something wrong or there's something terrible. And I hear this often when people get anxious, they think, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. This is my anxiety. Depression and anxiety are not, are not diseases. They're not pathologies. They're not abnormalities. They're emotions. And what are emotions? Emotions are a complex information processing system. Emotions are sensations designed to tell you whether your needs are being met or not. So very often what I ask people to think about is I want you to think about hunger. Hunger, despite what you might think, hunger is an emotion. Mm. Um, you know, we often use it that way. We talk about hanger and mm. we talk about these experiences. When you feel hungry, you're feeling an unpleasant physical experience, mm -hmm. but you're feeling it for a reason. You're feeling hungry because you have a need for food. And so if you eat and you meet your need, your hunger goes away. Now imagine every time you got hungry, you thought you're doing something wrong. And you had to take an appetite suppressant to try and get rid of it. Yeah. You'll stop the hunger for a short while, but eventually it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until you meet that need. Mm. That process works the same way with anxiety and depression. Anxiety is an emotion that activates when we have an uncertain, uncontrollable future. Sure. So when you, when you don't feel safe, when you don't feel like you know that you can handle what's to come in your life, you get anxious. We can give you an anti-anxiety medication, but we're not giving you what you needed. What you needed was control, certainty, or safety. When we get depressed, depression is a reaction to loss. When we feel disconnected from our true selves, from nature, from meaningful work, from purpose, from a desired future, from other people that we love, we get depressed. Mm -hmm. And very often by understanding what it is we need to reconnect to us, that's what cures depression. That's what takes it away. We're not supposed to get rid of the feeling. We're actually supposed to understand it. And if we understand it, we can then use therapy to teach you ways to meet those underlying needs. We can develop what coping skills are. Yeah. And if you develop these coping skills, you won't feel as anxious and depressed, not because we chemically wiped out the emotion, but because we taught you how to better meet your needs in a sustainable way. And so while psychedelics do make you feel less depressed and anxious for a short while, mm -hmm. therapy creates the sustainable change. The way we often portray it is we like to say, while the psychedelic or the medicine will get you well, therapy will keep you well. Sure. That's, that's beautifully put. Uh, and do you find that clients who had like severe depression or anxiety are able to eventually come off the medication like after... I don't know how many months or um, years of continuing therapy yeah, with you guys, or is it that it's, it works along like it's a two prong sort of method where they are continuing with the psychedelic assisted therapy and still on anti-anxiety or depression meds. Intriguingly, more often than not, people are getting to a space where they no longer require those medication. It, it, it's why so many people consider them to be so profound. So yeah. while it's different for everyone, we are seeing a lot of people come off of needing long-term medications. 
and rather they have a series of infusions, the right kinds of therapy, and coping takes over where medication used to work. Okay. And then, sorry, Anthony, because we're almost out of time. The two that I'm also interested in is um, PTSD and let's say um, trauma or like childhood trauma. How does psychedelics assist to get in those areas? Because I know based on research, it's actually recommended I think they used it with a lot of soldiers that were struggling with PTSD and there were a lot of results. But for an everyday person who wasn't necessarily in the military and didn't experience wars and so on, but is still got PTSD or a lot of childhood trauma, how does psychedelic-assisted therapy assist with being able to access those areas? It's, it's such a worthwhile question to ask because now that we've covered these three areas of saying you prepare you have a journey, and then you integrate. You take the insights and the learnings and you turn them into sustainable behavioral change. Mm -hmm. You have this complete picture. When we look at something like PTSD or trauma, mm -hmm. what trauma really reflects for a human being isn't just war zones, isn't just abuse. It's any time that you have an experience where your ability to cope is overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So a really distressing, traumatizing experience. Very often, traumas are important because traumas create limiting beliefs about yourself, others, and the world. These beliefs get entrenched in our minds without us realizing. Some of us go through a trauma and we develop the belief, I'll never be loved. I can never trust somebody. Mm -hmm. I'm worthless and I'll never be worth anything. We develop these beliefs and over time, they get entrenched in an unconscious way that guide us, and they become rigid and fixed. Sometimes we develop these beliefs, and even though we know they're there, we still struggle to act differently to them. Mm. Where psychedelics have shown themselves to be remarkably helpful is psychedelics will manifest these beliefs to you. But what psychedelics do is they take these beliefs that operate in something in the brain we call the default mode network, and they disrupt the default mode network. They cause this wide, widespread activation in your brain that allows you to look at this belief that you've been holding from several different angles. And for the first time, you are able to adopt radically different perspectives to the same situations. And because your mind becomes more malleable, you're actually allowed to truly question it and change it in ways that weren't accessible to you before. And because you start to adopt the possibility that you could think about it differently or understand it differently, you come out of a journey realizing what that belief is and that it doesn't have to be the truth. We then go into the process of integration to saying, for instance, if someone goes, always thought of myself as unlovable, but for the first time I've realized maybe those traumas weren't my fault. Maybe I am actually a good person that bad things happen to. We then explore an integration to say, well, if we acted in accordance with that, if we treated you like a person who deserves to be loved, what could we do differently? And they start saying, well, actually, I need to stop. I need to stop overworking just to please others. Maybe I need to have more boundaries in my life. And we'll talk about, okay, what are the exact parameters we'll create? Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, but I also need to take more care of myself. And we'll say, what would those self-soothing practices look like? And we start to build this roadmap of a new way of being. And over time, by acting on this understanding over and over and over again, Without the mental resistance that we had before the psychedelic, we now find that this really starts to sink in and becomes a new way of life, resolving some of those old traumas that otherwise persisted in your life. 
the other day I was reading up on attachment theory. And so as you were saying, those repeated patterns that we may have had due to the trauma that we experience that start to ingrain certain, I'll say it's like a psyche tape that plays in your mind all the time, like saying you're unlovable or whatever. And then you adapt a certain attachment theory. So it's it could be powerful in that sense that certain people are insecure or you say insecurely attached um, in a Mm -hmm. particular relationship. So after experiencing that, they could actually change their attachment to becoming secured in relationships and being able to communicate better, not having to worry that if somebody's gone away or they haven't texted in a few days, it means that they don't love the person anymore or they're gone or they've abandoned them. So I think that's powerful, especially linking back to the theme that you were speaking about on relationships. Mm, it's precisely that. It's exactly that. You'll hear very often someone says, I've had such insecurities in relationships and I haven't been fully sure why. And then they'll come to a conclusion in their preparation work of, wow, I recognize, for example, perhaps I didn't feel loved by my mom or protected by her based on these experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And I get where that's coming from. And one person, for example, who just springs to mind recently She had her psychedelic experience and she said the first thing that she experienced was she she almost had this memory play out or at least a fantasy play out in her mind where she remembered being incredibly, incredibly little and her mother gathering in her arms with such incredible love and affection. Sure. And she saw herself and her mom differently, but didn't just think it, felt it at Mm -hmm. a deep emotional level. And when she experienced that, she was reminded of a possibility that actually she wasn't always just rejected and actually she wasn't always just not protected. There were times where this love was there and therefore she is deserving of it. And because she felt that she now realized it's not just that I think it and I must do it. I feel it and I must do it. And she started to change her behaviors. She started to realize if I stand up for myself in this relationship and I tolerate separateness, maybe that's okay. And of course, when she changed her behavior, her partner actually started to like her more, desired her more, missed her more. And there was this deeper sense of love and connection and security. So that is exactly the kind of change you see happen. While I mentioned that with preparation, we often take between one to four sessions, integration is often a longer term process. So for every psychedelic experience, we recommend that someone has at least one integration. So with ketamine, you often have between one to six infusions. You often space them out by a week or so. So you have an infusion one and you integrate, infusion two and you integrate all the way to six and you integrate. But after six, very many people will continue for a little while, Mm -hmm. sometimes anywhere between a month to six months. And that might be spread out over once a month or once every three months, but very many people do the work. And we argue that integration is perhaps the most important part of the psychedelic experience because If you can have this experience and you can make the extraordinary realization you had and ordinary behavior, it sets you up for years to come in terms of the change. And so that process can extend as long as that person needs. Sure. And post-integration, do you uh, keep in touch with your clients? Do you have data that shows how they're doing? Let's say say a client has been in integration for a period of a year. And then they decide like, okay, I think I'm fine with where I am now. Do you have returning clients or how do you find that they keep on post integration? 
So the great news is that we do do that, but entirely voluntarily with people. We keep it both as their subjective report, their testimonials. We also keep it as our own clinician perspectives. And we also have structured um, assessments that tell us where someone is. And so, for example, we'll see that 86% of our patients on six-month review show full remission of, of, of major depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress symptoms, and they've sustained it over those months. Wow. So we do check in. There are people who come back for maintenance sessions, and of course, again, everybody's journey is different. For someone who's had you know, severe lifelong depression, you know, we don't put them under unrealistic pressure to have everything in order after six weeks. Yeah. But for the most part, we are finding that when people get well, they stay well and they're less reliant on returning. And that's really important to us because the goal here is not to create a revolving door. The goal is not to have repeat customers. The goal of all health and wellness is to get people so well that they frankly don't need us anymore. Yeah. I love that you say that because I feel like other therapists want to keep you coming <laughs> We're like you, like constantly there, but for me, I feel like you should be in therapy, and then you go out into to the world. You encounter difficulties, and then not you're like, okay, now I'm not equipped for this. Then you go back and you come up, but to like continuously be in therapy, and also changing of therapists is also good because you get a different mindset, a different framing. Or for some people, they might enjoy that continuity. But I also wanted to ask around addictions quickly, which is, do you also get clients coming in and does that also assist if people addicted to substances or alcohol or drug, any drug? Very much so. We, we do see that in many cases and we do provide assistance for addiction. One of the key lessons that we know is that we don't ask someone to go through ketamine infusions while they're still in active withdrawal. So we do usually make sure that somebody has gone through an inpatient or an outpatient process to wean off from whatever that substance is so that they've stabilized and now we can do the deeper work. The reason for this is that substances and addictions are always a symptom. They're never the cause. Mm. So, you know, someone who's drinking excessively, that is a problem, but it's not the problem. Okay. That person's drinking is coming from depression and that depression is coming from life and happiness and that life and happiness is coming from a whole variety of sources. Mm. So we often remark that you use traditional means to stabilize the person in the addiction and then we can use the, 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 the alternative means to get to do the deeper work. And so we do see very good success rates in terms of that because, you know, to your point, and so many people have worried that psychedelics are addictive and one of the great news you know, pieces about them is that they know not only amongst the safest and most well-tolerated substances on earth, they really are incredibly low on the addiction scale. Mm. They are not particularly addictive, especially the classical psychedelics. You know, when someone talks about mushrooms, ayahuasca or LSD, yeah. if you ask someone who's gone through a mushroom journey for therapeutic purposes right after they finished and say, would you like some more mushrooms? They'll say, absolutely not. I've got a lot of work to do before I even think about this again. That's the last thing I want. Yeah. They are very, very safe. And of course, we do these things with close medical oversight. So as much as treating an addiction, we don't put people at risk. Hard. Has it been taking the leap to starting equanimity? Do you think if you could go back in time, you would have done the exact same thing? I must say that it has been a very, very mixed bag. Mm. You know, starting a business, you know, is very different from clinical practice. And it has simultaneously 
been the most terrifying, difficult, gut-wrenching experience. But by the same token, it has also been incredibly rewarding, fascinating, and enlightening. If I think back, would would I do it all over again? Absolutely. For the lessons I learned, for the growths that I experienced, and most importantly, in this case, for the good that I've seen a lot of people experience as a result of what we've what we've cultivated, I would definitely repeat it. Our podcast tradition when we're about to end is to get the guests to give us three pieces of advice that they would give to anyone who's navigating their 20s. So, Anthony, if you had three pieces of advice you could give to people navigating their 20s, what would it be? Okay. So, I think number one would be In your 20s, your challenge is to work as hard as you possibly can to see what you're capable of so that you can start to rest in your 30s and your 40s. So don't be afraid to push the limits just for a little while. The second would be that all good relationships are based on the word no. Everybody is your friend when you say yes. Only those who truly love you will tolerate the word no. So don't be afraid to say it when you need to. It's not always about getting that person's agreement. It's about seeing who really belongs and who doesn't. And the third would be that authenticity will always outperform effectiveness and hard work. Whatever you do, if you do it from a truthful place and from a real passion and a real desire, it will always shine through over all else. So please do your absolute best not to lose that. And that's it for our 12th episode. Thank you for being a part of this growing community. And if this conversation has touched you or helped you in any way, consider sharing it with a friend, colleague, or even a family member. You can also support the show by subscribing to the podcast and giving us a rating on your podcast platform or on our YouTube channel. If you're looking for a place to debrief about episode 12 with Dr. Anthony Townsend, follow our social media pages, Navigating the 20s, on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Remember that our LinkedIn and Substack newsletter will be out today, the 28th of February. This has been Navigating the 20s. We will be back with more on the 20th of March with episode 13. 